Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music, obviously on Mustar FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program, dear listeners. Today in the studio is my favorite team, I must say. This morning I was very happy and very relieved when I remembered that I was going to record with you girls. So, Thank hello, you. Ellen. <laughs> hello, dear listeners. And we have Alessia here. Hello. And Joan. Hello. I am Beatrice. And today we are going to start with a very interesting topic because it's literature. Everybody knows I love it. And Ellen is going to talk to us about something that doesn't really have a name. So please... <laughs> <laughs> no, the problem is that uh, I'm not uh, smart enough to create a good name, but still I'm trying. It's not uh, an obstacle for me. So in Russia, it's called literature of uh, Russian uh, like foreign hood. Uh, or in other words, we can say that it's literature which uh, was produced uh, abroad, uh, which was written abroad. And uh, it's a um, particular Russian phenomenon because uh, I will explain you, but just in a few words before. Because in all other countries, uh, you didn't have this uh, disgusting uh, event such as the uh, First Revolution, after which uh, people left the country incredibly, I mean, incredible amount of people. Then the Second World War, and uh, I will explain why a lot of people left, a lot of writers. And uh, then uh, in 60s, 70s, uh, we had the same uh, immigration wave. We call them immigration wave or waves of immigration, when a lot of people, not uh, just a few, and uh, among them uh, there were a lot of intellectuals left. Uh, and uh, that's why in the 20th century, two Russias, one uh, on Russian territory in the Soviet Union and another one abroad, were founded. And they existed in, uh, like, parallel universes. So it's pretty interesting. The phenomenon and uh, this uh, literature of uh, Russian foreignhood up to me, I like this expression because in Russian it sounds literatura ruskova zarubezhia and zarubezhia is a kind of term like foreign land or something like this in general. Not so specific but very general term. It uh, started after the 1917th uh, revolution when uh, the old Russia, Russian empire was ruined and a new world, completely new country with uh, a new order was founded. In addition, it was a time of citizen war in my country and it was uh, very difficult for people because, you know, the citizen war is uh, one of the worst when uh, citizens of the same country kill each other for some political, cultural or other views. And uh, that's why this uh, first wave of immigration started in 1918 and was finished more or less approximately at 1940 because uh, it's a date uh, when we consider the Second World War started. Yes. In Russia, it, it started a little bit late, like one year later in 1941. It's called um, Great Russian War. So it's a little bit different. We have a special term and uh, a little bit different dates for it. Yes. When Russia started participation in this uh, war conflict. And uh, next, uh, Second War was started uh, in 1940 and was finished, uh, according to different scientists, uh, either on the uh, 1950s or the middle of 1960s. It's uh, according to different views because uh, somebody considers these uh, people who left uh, only just uh, during the war or a little bit later. later yeah. And some uh, includes, uh, includes also people who left a little bit later after war. And uh, the last war, which is the third one, started in 1960s or the middle of 1960s, according to the same to different views. And uh, the reasons and uh, conditions of every wave of immigration were completely different. So if we are going to talk about the first one, it was the revolution of 1917 and difficult political atmosphere, a lot of political changes which uh, occurred in my country. And um, at this moment, we found it uh, second Russia abroad because it's completely crazy up to me. If, we, if you think about it, we had the Russian Empire with a lot of uh, people who supported the King family and uh, a lot of officers. But then all of these, like the best people of the country, left. 
and we'll discover what beautiful things they produce after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music, obviously on Mustar FM 89.6. Here we are again on our cultural program and Ellen was talking to us about this phenomenon of Russian intellectuals emigrating abroad for many complicated reasons for a long period of time and producing their Literature work. Literature and yeah. uh, art in general. Thank you, Bea. Yeah, I started talking about the first wave of Russian immigration, which occurred, as I mentioned, in 1918, 1940 years of uh, the 20th century. So the first reason was this revolution and a lot of, uh, we call them white officers because the war in Russia, citizen war, was between white and red officers. So as you understand, red supported uh, the Communist Party, Bolsheviks, and uh, white officers supported King's family and old regime. And honestly speaking, when these people left the country, they didn't suppose that uh, it would be forever, because it was just a kind of temporary solution for the current situation to save their lives and such stuff. But then Bolsheviks won and there was no way back. So it was very difficult for them. And uh, they chose different uh, cities uh, to establish this new second Russia. It was Constantinople, Sofia, Prague, Berlin, Paris, Harbin, Shanghai. Also, some of them moved to the Latin America, Canada, Poland, Yugoslavia, Baltic countries, and the USA as well. And uh, one of the most interesting uh, phenomenon of this wave was their ship called uh, Philosophical Ship. So what happened? It was also known as uh, Philosopher's Steamboat because uh, for this time, uh, you know, we have steamships which work on steam as uh, trains as well. And uh, this ship transported intellectuals expelled from Soviet Russia in 1922. The main load was handled by two German ships, the Obergermeisterhaken and the Prussian, which transported more than 160 expelled Russian intellectuals and their families in September and November of 1922 from Petrograd, modern-day St. Petersburg, to the seaport of Stettin in Germany. Modern-day, uh, this city is located in Poland. Three detention lists included 228 people, and uh, 32 of them were still students. Later in 1922, other intellectuals were transported by train to Riga in Latvia or by ship from Odessa to Istanbul. So mostly these people were writers, engineers, teachers or professors, lawyers, and some of them were still students, so pretty young. Also, there were a bit of politicians who supported another kind of political system because Russian political system was completely changed. And it's very interesting how some um, politicians explained this solution. So they said that there was no official reason to exile them or to shoot them, but uh, the country didn't want to see them inside, so they just just uh, decided to uh, officially move them. And some wow. people, some uh, Cossacks and uh, white officers uh, just uh, moved voluntarily because they couldn't, uh, couldn't imagine themselves living in a new regime. Okay, next uh, wave of immigration happened in uh, 1940s. Uh, 50s, and it was connected with the Second World War. First of all, the main part of this wave uh, consisted of uh, kind of uh, departed people. And uh, some of them uh, moved uh, voluntarily because they were soldiers or officers uh, taking part in the war. And at some point, uh, they either saw another kind of life, another kind of lifestyle which uh, they could see in Europe, and they preferred to stay in these uh, conditions. Of course. Because it was such a big difference between. Or they could um, be not um, in the best uh, position on the war, so they could be occupied, uh, they could have some problems with uh, Germans or such stuff, and then they were afraid to come back to Russia because uh, there was like, if you was not the bravest officer, you're going to be mostly shot in Russia as a deserter or whatever. So there was no way 
back and that's why these people stayed in Europe or moved to the USA and uh, wrote their literature there. But we'll learn a lot more about them after a short music break, so stay with us. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustar FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program. And Ellen was telling us about this phenomenon of Russian intellectuals and writers living abroad during the period of the USSR. Yeah, thank you, Bear. So in my country, it happened that uh, in the 20th century, we organized uh, two Russias, one on the Russian territory and another one abroad, which uh, lived uh, like in parallel universes uh, without any connections because it was impossible to write a letter to your family. Nobody could guarantee that it would be delivered because, come on, you are from another country and uh, for, for sure it would be checked, but then no guarantee that somebody would deliver it. And also it was impossible to call to Russia and the whole country was lost. But in 1960s, uh, the third wave of Russian immigration started and uh, it was also completely different from the previous two. First of all, we call them people of 60s because after Stalin's death, there was a new period uh, when Nikita Khrushchev became the first secretary of the Soviet Union and uh, he officially announced that Stalin was a kind of tyrant and uh, he was not the best uh, ruler ever as usually before people considered him. And uh, he also mentioned about repressions which happened uh, because of him. And uh, this gave a lot of hope to people and for sure to intellectuals as well. But then all hopes were buried because nothing happened. Nothing was changed. It was the same time of, uh, we call it Zastoy in Russian, and it means nothing is going on. It's like uh, jelly. Everything is frozen and there is no way, no hope to change the situation. So in this period, there was a very important meeting in Finland. And uh, at this point, Russian rulers, Russian government allowed Jewish to leave the country. because Also because Israel was uh, founded a little bit earlier. But from this point, it was officially allowed to leave the country for Jewish people and also for some people, such writers who openly don't uh, support uh, the regime. And uh, that's why a lot of people started uh, looking for their Jewish roots. It was super famous and super popular. Also, some people married, you know, in the way to have these <laughs> Jewish roots. Yeah, in order and to leave. In order to leave. And uh, you know s probably some names of people who left among them was uh, Solzhenitsyn. Of course, yeah. Yes, uh, one of uh, the most famous uh, Russian writers of 20th century and a uh, person who openly supported the peace in the world and uh, was against the Soviet regime. And um, this is interesting that these people mostly leave the country without pressure, more or less. It was not that much... Uh, dangerous as it was before. And uh, also, you know, I hope, uh, Joseph Brodsky, of who course. is uh, yeah, the Nobel winner and uh, one of the best uh, poets uh, up to me. I love him. And uh, I'm writing a thesis about another writer whose name is uh, Sergei Davlatov and who left also in um, 70s, uh, but uh, he's supposed to be one of the people from the third wave. Uh, and uh, he didn't want uh, to move he didn't want to leave Russia, the Soviet Union, but he couldn't publish anything. And at some point, his uh, wife and daughter left to the USA uh, up to their Jewish roots without him. And uh, he was arrested. They beat him and uh, they said, you have two options, prison or emigration. And he said, okay. From this point, he decided to emigrate. So it was the only way. And it's super unusual that, uh, okay, he left firstly to Europe. It was a kind of uh, period uh, between, you know, the Soviet Union and uh, the final destination, the USA. He lived for a bit in Italy. And uh, all his books uh, started being published 
only in the USA. And at some point, his uh, story was also published in the New Yorker. So it was, and Kurt Vonnegut uh, wrote a kind of introduction to it. So in Russia, in the Soviet Union, it was completely impossible to become a writer. And at some point, he did it abroad. And uh, just one more statement. Now, for sure, we have also a lot of writers abroad, but according to Dmitry Bikov, you know, this critic, writer, poet, and so on, it's uh, different uh, because when we have that much people abroad, it's not emigration anymore. It's not uh, Russia abroad. It's just a cosmopolitan world. But we'll continue talking about culture after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustar FM 89.6. Hello and welcome back to our cultural program. And we're going to go on this very, very interesting uh, program with Alessia, who is going to continue talking about literature. Is that right? Yes, because uh, I will uh, talk uh, uh, about uh, fairy tales. Um, uh, fairy tales uh, gripping, uh, magical and uh, inspiring uh, our master narratives, no? And uh, uh, children uh, sub, uh, subconsciously recall uh, their messages uh, as they grow older and uh, are forced uh, to cope uh, with the real injustices and the contradictions uh, in uh, their lives. Some fairy tales uh, are based on legends uh, that incorporated a spiritual belief of the culture in which they originated and were meant to emulate truth. Numerous uh, fairy tales and the legends behind them are actually watered down versions of uh, uncomfortable historical events. <laughs> These darker stories uh, may uh, be too terrifying for today's kids, as or, or probably not today's kids, but uh, kids uh, in the past. <laughs> yeah, because uh, today's kids yeah. are even worse. Yeah. <laughs> With the internet and the TV, it's very easy to uh, to see terrifying stories. Stories, and um, uh, as well, um, it's better for uh, to in the past. It was better uh, uh, didn't know the real stories about uh, uh, these uh, classical fairy tales, and uh, uh, they uh, their horrific uh, horrific. Uh, um, Origins uh, which often uh, involve rape, uh, incest, um, torture, cannibalism, and uh, other uh, hideous uh, occurrences uh, are brimming uh, with uh, sophisticated and uh, brutal uh, morality. Their uh, images uh, cannot uh, be uh, dispelled uh, easily, and their lessons are more powerful uh, than uh, the present day innocuous uh, fables uh, they resemble. In the early uh, 18th, uh, Jacob and uh, Wilhelm Grimm collected uh, stories uh, that depicted uh, the unpredictable and uh, often unforgiving life experienced by the Central Europeans. These brothers uh, determined uh, to preserve the Germanic uh, oral storytelling that was uh, vanishing uh, poured over the folklore of the region. Their first collection of stories was based on actual uh, gruesome events. However, they had uh, to provide lighter uh, interpretations of these uh, factual incidents in order to sell books. Consequently, they paid attention to previously printed fairy tales, particularly those of Charles Perrault. As early as the 17th century, this Frenchman, who is thought to be the father of fairy tales, created some of the most imaginative and daily full stories ever told. His confabulations of a pumpkin carriage and a fairy godmother in Cinderella, for example, are magnificently enchanting. His uh, um, original Cinderella, based on a true story, contains violent uh, elements uh, as well, since uh, uh, the quick uh, stepsisters uh, butcher their own feet uh, while uh, trying uh, to get into the slipper that the prince uh, had found. 
Perrault's tales, uh, albeit charming, were unsentimental, for uh, they were intended for adults because no children's literature existed at the time. His uh, suspense story, Bluebeard, uh, reads like a crime thriller with bloody knives and curious dead weaves. His moral that uh, women should be less nosy apparent. Pirou uh, based his fairy tale on two accounts of dark depravity in Brittany, France. The earlier of the two accounts dealt with a savage Sith uh, century ruler. The second detailed the acts of a nobleman named Grilles de Ray, who tortured, mutilated, raped and murdered hundreds of innocent children. The almost barbaric episodes that follow are just a smattering of fairy tales as we know them today, derived from spoken legends with which were based on facts. The morals these stories convey are far more important than the events themselves, the circumstances of which are often forgotten. These uh, occasionally tales uh, were good uh, conquerors, evil, the wicked get punished, the righteous live happily ever after, offer hope that one can do something positive about changing on oneself and the world. But we will learn how this goes on after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustar FM 89.6. Hello and welcome back to our cultural program. And Alessia was explaining to us the origins of Grimm's fairy tales and we really want to know more. Yes, because now we will discover the real uh, stories uh, behind uh, um, fairy tales. And we will start uh, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The fairy tale is based on the tragic life of Margaret von Waldeck, a 16th century Bavarian noblewoman. Margaret grew up in Bad Wildangen, where her brother used small children to work his copper mine, severally deformed because of the physical labor meaning required. They were despairingly referred to as droves. The poison apple is also rooted in fact, and old men would offer tainted fruits to the workers, and other children he believed stole from him. Margaret's stepmother, despising her, sent the beauty to the Brussels court to get rid of her. Uh, the Prince Philip II of Spain became her esteemed lover. His father, the King of Spain, opposing the Romans, dispatched Spanish agents to murder Margaret. They surreptitiously poisoned her. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know. Philip the Beautiful. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. She was the lover. So there's a, there are historical facts behind uh, some uh, so, uh, story tales. The second one that I choose is Rapunzel. Rapunzel draws upon an early Christian story. In the 3rd century AD, a prosperous pagan merchant living in Asia Minor so adored his beautiful daughter, he forbade her to have suitors. Accordingly, he locked her in a tower when he traveled. There is no mention how hair became important, but she converted to Christianity, praying so loudly when the merchant left. Her devotion reverberated through town. The merchant, uh, informed of her actions, dragged her before the Roman proconsul, who insisted the father behead her or forfeit his fortune if she would refuse to give up her newfound religion. The father decapitated her but was killed by a lightning strike soon after. That's what I call karma, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
she became the martyr Saint Barbara, revered by the Eastern Orthodox Church. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And it's amazing how the story from the third century came all the way to us. It's And uh, also, it's um, it's very uh, weird uh, the fairy tale that we know about yes. uh, Rapunzel. Sorry, but is it famous in Europe, Rapunzel story? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I have never heard about really? it. Really? Only the Disney cartoon. But that's it. I discover um, with this uh, when I studying uh, the topic, I discover a lot of things about also other uh, um, classical uh, uh, story tales that I didn't know. And uh, the next one is uh, Cinderella. Mm-hmm. That uh, blonde, fair, uh, complexionate, but uh, mistreated uh, beauty in uh, Perrault's tale loosely relates uh, to the history of uh, Rhodopis, a Greek woman whose name means rosy cheeked. When uh, she was a young girl, she was captured in a trace, sold into slavery around 500 BC and taken to Egypt. Her unusual looks made her a treasured commodity and her master showered her with gifts, including a pair of golden shoes. These shoes and rodophis were noticed by the pharaoh Hamos II. He insists she become one of his wives. While not his principal revered partner born of royal blood, She would still perform ceremonial functions and mainly be uh, readily available to uh, gratify homosexuality. Did her newfound status offer her perpetual happiness? Probably no. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. And uh, moreover, in a brother's grim version, Cinderella's uh, eldest sister, in uh, an attempt to fit into the, the glass uh, golden in the story, a slipper cuts of her toes. The second sister cuts of her heel. In both uh, cases, uh, two doves sent uh, by Cinderella's dead mother alert the prince of the sister's blood in the slippers. Through Cinderella was finally found to be the true owner of the slipper. During uh, her wedding to the prince, uh, the doves uh, return and uh, poke her older sister's uh, haze out. Yes, but we really want to learn more about the origins, the true origins of fairy tales after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustar FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program. And Alessia was telling us about the true stories behind the Grimm's fairy tales. Yes, and the next one is one of my favorite, Mulan. Do you know Mulan, the, yeah, the cartoon? cartoon. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, Chu uh, Rewo's version of Mulan, as the warrior uh, come home from war to find her father dead, her mother remarried, and uh, the Khan calling her to be his concubine. As it's all too much for her, Mulan kills herself. It's completely yeah. different. Well, you know, it's like the Little Mermaid. Yeah. You know, in the story, she doesn't end marrying the prince. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Yeah. And uh, the next one is uh, Bluebeard. Perrault uh, wove his uh, story around uh, Conomor the Cursed, the Breton uh, chief uh, who had been uh, forewarned he would be slain by his own son. As soon as one of his wives became pregnant, he murdered her. But Perrault was more fascinated by Gilles de Rey, a wealthy 15th century nobleman, a hero of the Hundred Years' War, John of Arch's protector on the battlefield. After he left the military, he became a notorious serial killer of children. He was given the nickname Bluebeard because his horses sleek for looked blue in the daylight. At his shocking trial, he described in detail how he had preyed upon and tortured innocent children. Perrault 
do you pawn these facts to uh, conjure up his own own nightmarish character? It's completely different. So, and all this story is very, very creepy. Horrible, really. Yes, yes. And the next, oh, Ansel and Gretel. The tale of uh, Hansel and Gretel could have been told to keep children from wandering off. But during the great uh, famine of uh, 1315 uh, uh, and 1317 AD that crushed most of continental Europe and England, disease, mass death, infanticide and cannibalism increased exponentially. Seeking uh, relief, uh, some desperate parents deserted uh, their children and uh, uh, slaughtered their draft animals. Or Ansel and Gretel uh, might uh, have uh, stumbled uh, upon the home of the successful baker Katharina Schreidering. In uh, the 16s, she concocted such a scrumptious gingerbread cookie that a jealous male baker accused her of being a witch. After being uh, driven uh, from town, a pose of hungry neighbors uh, hunted her down, brought her back to her home and burned her to death in her own oven. My God. Yes. And uh, now, because I have a lot, I won't uh, tell the last, I think. Uh, the Ugly Duckling. Yeah. Yeah. Hans Christian Andersen's tale, The Ugly Duck- Duckling, is a famous story world around. The real version has the little chick originally erased incessantly by the older barnyard animals. He escapes and lives with wild geese and ducks who are soon slaughtered by hunters. And all the woman takes him in, but her cat and her harass him even more so he leaves again. After much abuse and spending winter alone, he joins the swans who return in spring. I was shocked when I read this, uh, this story because um, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. And there's the frog prince. Oh. In some versions, it's not a kiss from the princess's godness uh, that transforms the frog into a prince, but the chopping off his head. <laughs> ah, <laughs> okay. So, really, uh, come out of this body, literally. <laughs> okay. In the original Brothers Grimm version, the princess lamps the frog into the wall that turn him back into prince. <laughs> A Russian folk version as a prince come upon a female frog princess. Yeah, it's true. And also I'd like to say that most of them I know in Russian analogs. It's not uh, the same. Only Anderson was translated. All others mostly were reworked. Amazing. We'll talk more about culture after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustar FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program. And Alessia was telling us about the true origins of fairy tales. And we are staying in the fairy tale uh, world because Joanna is going to talk about fashion in some Disney princesses' movies. Yes, thank you, Via. Yes, today I chose to speak about the uh, conception and creation of uh, two dresses for two Disney movies. My first choice is Boti and the Best, uh, designed by Academy Award winning uh, costume designer Jacqueline Durand, who uh, designed everything from the costume for all the villagers to the elaborate uh, ball gown worn by Belle when she danced with the best. Uh, in the coastal uh, ballroom, she said it was uh, hastily uh, the uh, trickiest uh, costume because the world loved bells, a yellow uh, frock in the original. As a result, the design, the process was uh, lengthy and it involved uh, numerous uh, discussions about its uh, look, color and the uh, material used. 
the dress was always going to be uh, yellow in her uh, films as an homage to the animation Jacqueline said what we tried to do was reinterpret in her flesh it out a bit by adding more texture and making it feel like a real living costume in the hand the dress was created from a multiple layer of phaser light satin organza dade the top two layer were printed with a cold left filigree in the pattern matching the ballrooms rococo floor and accentuated with a 2.160 uh, crystal. The dress uh, took over 12,000 hours to make and multiple uh, copies uh, were uh, needed. Uh, interestingly, uh, the team decided uh, not to include a corset or a cage because they wanted Emma to be able to uh, move because uh, this bell is uh, way more active than the bell from the animated uh, film. It was uh, definitely an interesting uh, challenge. Emma said the dress uh, itself is uh, so icon iconic because it is a part of that romantic scene in the story. The dress went through a, a lot of uh, different interactions, but in the end, we decided the most important thing uh, was that the dress danced beautifully. We wanted it to uh, feel like it could uh, float, uh, like it could flip. Jacqueline agreed, uh, saying, we actually uh, took this into uh, consideration when designing all of Bell's uh, costume. We didn't want her uh, to be a delicate uh, princess, uh, but an active heroine. So uh, the blue dress and apron she uh, wore uh, at the beginning of the film was uh, designed with a pocket where she uh, could uh, place a book and to be a uh, roan with a plumer and her uh, podies. Belle uh, ditched uh, the dainty uh, sandal and opts uh, for a pair of uh, boots uh, to wear uh, with her uh, yellow dress. Uh, we really uh, wanted to explain Belle's uh, persona in the film and wanted to uh, make uh, sure she uh, came across as a uh, Jen June of uh, women, Emma said. We made sure uh, she had a proper uh, food year and uh, he carried uh, up one side of her uh, skirt. So uh, she could read a uh, Western style and uh, that it uh, looked hazy for her. But we really want to learn more about the gown, the yellow gown Belle wore in Beauty and the Beast after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music... Obviously, on Mustard FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program. And we're kind of talking about fairy tales and fairy tale gowns because Joanne was telling us about the conception of the dress, the yellow dress that Emma Watson wore for the remake of Beauty and the Beast last year. Yes, thank you, Bea. I continue. The exception for all of Belle's costumes were uh, quite height, but we ended up with some beautiful dress that reference the animated film, but are still unique to this one. It was the team for an Emma said she loved working with Jacqueline, one for the wonderful thing about working with Jacqueline is that she is so incredibly collaborative. I was just 
Plone uh, array uh, by who uh, much in poet uh, she wanted from me. She really uh, wanted to understand who I pressed saved uh, the character inside and out. It was uh, such a special experience for me as an actress and such a great way to uh, bold uh, and understand a character through that process. Now I speak the second movie, Cinderella. Uh, costume designer Sandy Powell uh, drew uh, inspiration from the uh, 19th century and the 1950 to uh, re the look of a character from the classic cartoon for director uh, Ken Niels uh, Pranag uh, remark. I wanted uh, the costume to be uh, bold and have an exposition of color as if it were a picture book, says uh, Powell, uh, 54 and a three-time Oscar winner. But at the same time, I wanted the clothes to be uh, true to each uh, character and uh, believed in a fairy tale movie, as you uh, may imagine a believed can be uh, stricted. Bowell work on Cinderella included a uh, 12-layer ball cown and single dress that uh, took uh, more than uh, 550 hours to uh, make an eight pair of uh, shoes made of Swarovski crystal, none of which were ever worn by Cinderella herself. When it came time to dress uh, Cinderella, uh, Lily James from uh, Downton uh, Abbey, for her uh, magical uh, wedding uh, to the prince, a Game of Thrones alum Richard um, Maiden, uh, Bowell say it was uh, crucial that the happily ever after uh, can be unlike the show's topping a blue cone she her to the ball creating the wedding dress was a challenge rather than try to make some time ever better than the ball cone i had to do something completely different and simple she says i wanted the wool effect to be ephemeral and fine, so uh, we want with an extreme uh, lined shape uh, bodies with a long train. She uh, constructed a beige colored long sleeve, a silk organza, a cone with a floral print to represent the simplicity of the princess to be a Cinderella wine. The prince uh, hurt through her goodness, uh, so I wanted to show this uh, through her clothes. Powell explained, uh, wanted her to say uh, modest and pure, even through uh, she was going to be a part of royalty. A team of um, seamstress, meticulosi, a cut a suede and a stitch together the elegant uh, to the floor uh, length a cown for uh, nearly a month once uh, it was uh, assembled the frog uh, was uh, given to the artist who intricately uh, hand paint a flower on to uh, the uh, crown it took uh, 16 people and uh, 550 hours to uh, complete the dress but we'll talk a lot more about dream dresses after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustard FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program. And John was telling us about dream gowns and about Sandy Powell's costumes for the 2015 uh, remake of Cinderella. Thank you, Bea. Yes, I continue. Whoever has the hard work put into the picture-perfect cone uh, was an early loss. Will the production crew uh, sniped a photograph of uh, James in the uh, cone she has uh, 
to uh, close a uh, small electric hurter uh, and uh, the dress uh, caused one uh, fear. It was a disaster. Uh, the uh, entire uh, top uh, layer was uh, completely uh, burned and it had uh, to uh, be uh, redone. Had we uh, were concerned about uh, was the dress because uh, only uh, one wedding dress was created due uh, to a time and the budget says Powell. For the prince uh, wedding day at year, Powell uh, chose a military uh, aesthetic uh, similar to the animated uh, character but uh, with a tailoring from the 1950 uh, thrown in the silhouette and the shape of the uh, shoulder is from the original animation, she says, but we created more of the 50 uh, look and dress him in a less masculine color, such as the blue, green and white. The wool military jacket, which uh, was dyed and the light blue to uh, accentuate a maiden's haze, uh, boasts a gold bullion on the crystal second seed braids uh, that were uh, hand embroidered in Pakistan. Powell became working and concept for the character look almost uh, two years before a principal photography began in the summer of 2013 on the sound stage of England's uh, Beanwood studio. The uh, British designer flew with uh, the animated film before starting her design process just out of curiosity, but she was influenced uh, subconsciously uh, by the size of a ball cone in which uh, Cinderella uh, makes her uh, dramatic entrance to the uh, place uh, ball. She became... Um, with uh, the uh, sketch uh, below. I wanted to make the uh, cone look enormous, she say, uh, the cone and uh, to look lovely when she dance and runs away from the ball. I wanted her to look like she was uh, floating, uh, like a watercolor uh, painting to uh, convey and uh, weight less uh, following a dress, the voluminous uh, skirt uh, was uh, composed of more uh, zayn and dozen uh, fine layer of fabric uh, that including a crepeline, a silk uh, printed a polyester and iridescent uh, nylon in a different uh, shape of blue and turquoise under a nurse. Uh, those uh, layer uh, gems uh, wore and corset and petticoat uh, in the hand nine versus of Cinderella ball a cone were uh, created each uh, featuring more than two hundred seventy yards of a fabric and 10,000 Swarovski crystal. It took uh, 18 tailor and 500 hours to complete a per dress. The uh, biggest uh, challenge of all was uh, bringing Cinderella famous glass slipper to a life instead uh, of using a glass powell designing of 5 inch hells uh, made out of Swarovski, a crystal based on her shoes uh, from the 1890 that uh, she say in a museum in Northampton, England. The most important uh, thing was the shoes and uh, to be uh, made out of a crystal because a glass does uh, not sparkle, she explained. Uh, eight pair of the shoes were uh, created, but gems were unknown due to uh, the fact that a crystal was no movement. But we'll continue talking about culture after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music, obviously on Mustard FM 
Here we are again in our cultural program, and since Joanne talked about dreamy, dreamy fashion, I thought I was going to continue talking about fashion, but ugly fashion, not nice and dreamy fashion, because in the Paris Review, Katie Kelleher has uh, published a three-part series of articles on the aesthetics of ugliness. The first one was on ugly art. It was published at the end of September. The second one was on ugly design and it was published in the middle of October. And the third and last one, which I'm going to kind of read to you, unfortunately, in an abridged version, because we don't have much time, is entitled Ugliness is Underrated, Ugly Fashion. And it was published on October the 30th on the Paris Review. And she starts with a story. So... In 2009, Alexander McQueen sketched a shoe that would forever change footwear, even for those who, like me, would never try it on or even see it in person. The shoe was shaped like a crab's claw and covered in glittering scales. It had a nine-inch spiked heel and an interior platform. The wearer would stand on tiptoe, feet curved into the extreme arch of a Barbie doll or a ballerina in point shoes. It was aggressively ugly. McQueen didn't intend to make these armadillo boots, as they came to be called, available to the masses. They were designed as showpieces. The collection that season was filled with fantastical items, objects that came from a future in which the ice cap would melt, the waters would rise, and life on Earth would have to evolve in order to live beneath the sea once more or perish, McQueen said. Humanity would go back to the place from whence it came. So these shoes are ugly, and yet these shoes are beautiful. Almost a full decade after McQueen debuted his futuristic footwear, another type of ugly shoe came tromping out. 2018 has been the year of the clog. Fashionable girls from Brooklyn to Berlin have been clomping around in wooden-heeled shoes. Stiletto sandals reveal and pumps accentuate, but like the armadillo shoes, clogs obscure the shape of the feet. They remove all eroticism. There is no delicate arch, no pointed toe, just leather and wood and practicality. At first glance, McQueen's high-fashion objects seem worlds away from the clogs featured on Lauren Metchling's popular Instagram account, Clog Life. But there are similarities. Both speak to a certain fantasy world, Mechling explains. When I think about Ultimate Planet Clog, there is no news. There are no politics, no bad doctor's appointments. It is a stupidly comfortable place of bad good taste, she says. Clogs are only a tiny part of this vision. They're emblematic of the aesthetic, ugly, messy, clumpy, imperfect, handmade, and rustic, and the aesthetic is just shorthand for a lifestyle. There are no men on planet Clog, Michling adds. They're just not there. Their gaze is not there. Their uniform desires are not there. She admits that she's poking fun at the privileged women around her, but she says there's a sense of earnestness to her project as well. It's creative, and that is totally sincere. Clog life is about a desire to spend more time cooking, writing, reading, being with friends, and living with other women. It's celebratory. This feels transgressive in a rather lovely way. Where McQueen imagined a post-apocalyptic hellscape during the hopeful early days of the Obama administration, Metchling is daring to imagine a feminist utopia in the dark months of Trump's seemingly endless reign. But high-design fashion has also long enjoyed the spiky thrill that comes from pissing people off and defying the norms. There are many examples of subcultures throughout the 20th century that embraced purposefully offensive clothing, from the pants-wearing rebel women post-World War I to the rockabilly babes of the 50s, but it would be wrong to call these fashions ugly. They were rebellious, clothes that play with gender expectations and expose unexpected swathes of skin aren't quite the same as outfits that distort the body, and this is the primary marker of ugly fashion. It has a mutating power. It has an element of unreality, a sense of the fantastic, just as McQueen had his armadillo shoes. 
ugly fashion also has a fetishistic tinge, and few people know this better than Vivian Westwood. The mother of punk began her career selling punk clothes in 1974, and I will tell you more about Westwood after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music, obviously on Mustar FM 89.6. Here we are again in our cultural program, and I was talking to you about ugly fashion, and I was mentioning Vivian Westwood, the mother of punk, who began her career selling punk clothes in 1974 when she renamed her London shop SEX. The store was a joint venture with the art student Malcolm McLaren and sold fetish wear like spiked heels and plastic corsets. In a few years, they would begin designing and selling ripped graphic t-shirts, jackets, festoons, with metal studs and skirts covered in buckles and straps, all items that would become staples of the punk rock look. One of their more iconic designs was the genderless bondage suit, which mimicked a straitjacket and made no effort to flatter the figure. This outfit was meant to make the wearer look insane, wild and more than a little dangerous. The best way to confront British society was to be as obscene as possible, Westwood once said. Westwood created a new visual style that was twisted and complex, imbued with highly erotic imagery, but also an element of madness. The buckles and straps, after all, were typically used in a sexual context to contort the body into strange and unusual shapes, distorting the human figure until it was a series of parts, the ultimate objectification. A talented seamstress, Westwood could have made great gowns, beautiful gowns, but she didn't want to make pretty things. She wanted to offend, to shake things up. She wanted to push back against capitalism and the patriarchy and colonialism and what she called in her memoir, a world of torture and death organized by the Western world. As long as there's been a capital F fashion industry, there's been an element of shock value present on the runway. Designers push the envelope because the capitalist beast demands more. There are only so many ways you can redesign an elegant bias-cut dress or a perfectly tailored suit. But there are infinite ways to create something ugly, something chaotic and strange, something that offends sensibilities and pushes back against the traditions of good taste and reputability and maybe even sheds light on all the blood spilled to keep these neoliberal ideals alive. A similar movement happened in the 90s, thanks to the influence of grunge and the general dissatisfaction and anger of Generation X. In both the 70s and the 90s, the movement towards ugly fashion started with a subculture, the punks and grunge kids, and moved into high fashion. It began with a street-level rebellion and ended with clothes retailing for thousands of dollars. Fashion capitalizes on anger against capitalism again and again. That's how this particular monster works. It just swallows its critics and its detractors whole. In our turbulent political times, it's fitting that ugly fashion has risen again, stronger and uglier than ever. But it's no longer enough to rip a shirt to shreds or wear an oversized flannel or stick safety pins in your ears. Now we have ugly dad sneakers and ugly floral dresses, ugly work vests and ugly sweaters. The fashion critic Robin Givhan at the Washington Post argues that the recent glut of ugly trends, prairie dresses, fanny packs, orthopedic sandals, etc., are aesthetic provocation designed to agitate. The gateway to ugly was the Birkenstock, Givhan writes, calling the German sandal an exemplar of the rise of anti-fashion. While many fashion designers have established a link between the proliferation of unflattering clothes in streetwear and the torrential downpour of assaults against women's bodies and rights, Givhan also smartly points out that ugly fashion has a populist tinge to it. The Seventh Avenue elites have ceded control to the hoi polloi, she argues. Customers are responsible for these waves of ugly. We, the people, are trolling ourselves. The desire to wear something unflattering and unattractive, something that you know people would dislike, is a strange one. Many critics have rightly pointed out that ugly fashion is inherently elitist. Not everyone can pull it off, so to speak. 
On some bodies, ugly fashion can look like ugly clothes, which means the entire enterprise is failed. The person wearing the ugly fashion must be in on the joke, and often the clothes must be expensive in order to prove their intentionality. This, too, has historical precedent. Many of the early punk rockers weren't exactly coming from poverty. This paradox is perhaps why fashion writers often fail to include one of the most culturally significant objects of dress in recent years in their roundups and think pieces. That red Make America Great Again hat. Do Trump supporters know that their hats are ugly? I think they do. I think the offensiveness, the bright, flat color, the bad kerning, the made in China-ness, the uncaring hypocrisy is the point. But I'll tell you about ugly fashion after a short music break. Every Friday from 10 to 12, follow us while we discover all the best culture has to offer worldwide. From science to cinema, from literature to music. Obviously, on Mustar FM 89.6. Welcome back to our cultural program, and I was telling you about ugly fashion. And even though there are problems with ugly fashion, I love how raw it is, how strange and how varied. There is something organic about ugly fashion. It springs up like weeds growing in sidewalk cracks and spreads outward until it's consumed the entire parking lot, or at least until it begins to look less ugly, until our eyes become used to the eyesores and the cycle begins again. But the real reason I adore ugly fashion is deeper than that. At my most generous, I think ugliness is a form of power. The disability justice organizer and writer Mia Mingus argues that ugliness is a pathway to intimacy. We fear ugliness, she says, because we place too much value on beauty. And yet, beauty is a limiting political construct built on our society's prejudices. If we were to accept and celebrate ugliness, to embrace our individual magnificence over our facial symmetry, perhaps we could foster a stronger sense of empathy. In the words of Gia Tolentino, we could all stop jostling for space on the narrow, precarious beauty bridge and instead howl like animals and jump right off. While Mingus and Tolentino are both talking about bodies, there's a lesson to be learned from worshipping ugly fashion too. Ugly fashion is a mirror. It reveals the repulsive nature of our consumerist desires. All ugly fashion is political, but also all fashion is ugly if you look at it through a politicized lens. In her book, Why I Am Not a Feminist, Jessica Crispin rips into a lean-in feminism, girl bosses, Hillary Clinton, and the commodification of rage. Even if women go in with good intentions, good intentions are nothing against the system, she writes. The system is older than you. It has absorbed more venom than you can ever hope to emit. In order to gain entry, you will have to exhibit the characteristics of the patriarchs who built it. In order to advance, you will have to mimic their behavior, take on their values. Their values are power, the love of power, and the display of power. But then, you are part of their culture. And this is precisely what ugly fashion reveals, if you look at it long enough. Like ugly design, ugly clothes show that there is no out side to culture. Every choice we make exists within a complex matrix. Our clothes are polluted and blood-stained before we ever put them on our bodies. This is always true, but the irony is especially potent when it comes to ugly clothes. No matter how rebellious you feel when you buy it, no matter how much you long to rail against to counter culture, you are still feeding the machine. This is not to suggest that there's no significant difference between the man wearing the Make America Great Again hat as he screams at a rally and the 20-something waif wearing a pair of ugly chic Birkenstocks as she skitters to Whole Food. There is a difference, but there are more similarities than we would like to admit. Because trolling is irony turned up a few notches. These cultural elements are all connected, bound together by falsely positing an outsider identity in a system we create and perpetuate. And I think this article was super, super interesting because to link this kind of ugly fashion to politics and to culture is something I honestly never thought about. I, ju I just thought it was ugly. <laughs> so... So, and now, yes, I have a question, because uh, who decides that uh, one thing is ugly or not? 
society? Yeah, I think. I think for me, ugliness is just something that shocks you. So, you know, the origin of the adjective obscene is literally something that is outside the scene. But the moment you bring something obscene on the scene, it's not obscene anymore. So you need to find something more ugly and more ugly to shock you more and more. So I think also that what is ugly changes over time. So it's really a cultural, historical thing. Yeah, I think it's about uh, we can recognize our familiar patterns of uh, fashion, of beauty, you know. And uh, if people can see that it's different, they would say that it's ugly because mm. we know what the beauty is. I mean, we know according to current uh, fashion models in general, not models about people, but patterns about clothes, uh, shoes or whatever. And also for me, it's a question of like, sexy stuff. You remember when we were talking about of course. and this uh, choice uh, to be ugly is a kind of protest uh, to this uh, social demand to be sexy or beautiful. Yes, exactly. So long live the clog and we'll see you next week for another cultural program. It's always hard to say goodbye. But don't worry, next week from 10 to 12, we are here for you again. With the best culture has to offer every Friday on Mushtar FM 89.6.